0: Hello everyone and welcome to a brand new episode of Opera After Dark. talking about today
1: well today we are talking about one of the most influential american composers and one of the most influential jazz composers of basically all time edward kennedy ellington otherwise known as duke ellington
2: wow i have no idea about the edward kennedy ellington
1: edward kennedy
2: edward wow yes this needs i who knew that we needed to do a formal series that was uh they also composed an opera that's true
1: (laughs) that's a good that's a good title for this little this little rabbit hole that we're on because we had
2: scott joplin scott joplin composed Mm -hmm. an opera didn't expect that and as you've told us naomi duke ellington apparently composed an opera
1: he did. We'll get to that. Okay, yeah. So, I'm jumping right. ahead of things. <laughs> Actually,
2: I do feel like, so this will be news that's like maybe a week and a half old or a couple of weeks old by the time this episode comes out, but I do want to acknowledge that I read that Mariusz Kavishian has announced his retirement. And oh, no.
0: What? I had no idea.
2: Yeah. Apparently, he's like had some back issues, something like that. Like oh. he- Sustained like, an, some kind of injury, I think, actually performing at the Met. And then he aggravated it at the Royal Opera House, and he's just oh, had no. issues. So apparently he's not going to be performing on the stage in the same way uh, that he has for so long and so well. But I believe he's going to be the artistic director at an opera house in his native Poland. So... Oh. At least there's that. But I know we all love him. So that it's just such a great baritone of the past, like, what, definitely 15 years. Yeah. Just solid laying it down.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I noticed he wasn't performing much within the last year, but he's just so good in everything he's ever done that I hoped he would do more.
2: I know. I know. That's
1: such a shame.
0: Well, I'm glad he's feeling better.
2: Yeah, or at least like he's able to kind of move on. Right, back injury, no joke. But I will, sure. I will always remember the beautiful, beautiful pearl fishers with him and Matthew Polinsani. And uh, I know Elspeth thinks that opera's a big joke.
0: I love that opera, but, <laughs> It's so so stupid. But I love it.
2: <laughs> but the duet is amazing, and not to mention I, in the I Mets didn't production, say it,
0: it was an amazing. It's an amazing opera, but it's just stupid.
2: Yeah, that's so
0: there's So there's a soft part, space in my heart for it always.
2: In the Mets production, there also is a great, great part where Mariusz, uh Mariush. can we skin the last name pronunciation? I can't get it right now. Kavishan. Kavishan. Great. Anyways. Oh,
1: Beth, we nailed that thank one Thank you. He either. goes, uh,
2: he has like a shirtless moment in that production and it's like everything I didn't know that I wanted, but totally did. I opera. feel like
0: there was a period of time where, if he was in opera in an opera, whether it really made sense or not, they found the director found a way for him to take his shirt off. It's like <laughs> if you have
2: it, use it, right?
1: Why not? I mean, he really, in my opinion, he's like one of the sexiest baritones to ever. Oh my gosh! Like grace I'm, the opera. I'm stage. not complaining about yeah. it. Yeah,
2: he is the hunk ba- barahunk of barahunks.
1: He is. There was one time I was backstage at the Met doing something for work, and he walked by me, like, in full costume for Don Giovanni, and being that close to him, it was like, it was like when Kyle saw Isabel Leonard up close, it was like, like, it took the wind out of my sails because he was even better looking up close than, than like in photographs and far away. And I was like, wow, he really is as good looking as I thought he is. Right. <laughs>
0: and dressed
1: as Don Giovanni. This is like exactly a dream come true for you. That's like, that's
2: like a, a, <laughs> a fantasy moment for Naomi. Although, maybe it was a I mean, weird like, thing. I
1: don't really want Don Giovanni because, like, he's a terrible person. Right. Yeah, like, but I, But, like, I, that era of clothing is just, like, <laughs> on the right person.
2: I bet you had a moment, though, where you're like, all right, I've spent all these years thinking, like, why does everybody fall for Don Giovanni? And then you're like, oh, I guess I get it. it
1: I get it now. Now yeah. I know
2: how it happens. It's got I mean, I'm telling you,
1: in Eugene Onegin, I saw him. When in and a Trebko was singing Tatiana at the Met and he was Onegin, And that last scene when he's like clinging to her skirts and like oh, so dramatic. begging. <laughs> it's so dramatic where he's like, like run away with me. I love you. Like, like, don't leave me. And she's just like, like, I'm a married woman now. Goodbye. And walks away. I'm like, man, if he was like clinging to my skirts like that, I don't know if I could say no. you like, <laughs> Be like I, Just saying. I know I have
2: a husband, <laughs> but. I mean, yeah, it's,
1: it's pretty, I mean, it's super dramatic. And the music, it, like the music also is amazing, but. It's
2: the full package. Yeah. Well, I feel
1: like yeah. it's one of those things. I'll say one more thing about it and then we can actually mm-hmm.
0: get onto the topic of conversation that we should have started a long time ago. I feel like having a man cling to your skirts, begging for you to run away with him. Sounds like really enticing and, and thrilling in theory, but I feel like it's one of those things that in real life that happened to you. You just be like, please, please stop. <laughs> That's
2: true. <laughs> please leave me alone. Please, please. leave me
1: like, alone. It's embarrassing. You are creeping right. Me out. I've said no repeatedly, and
0: you're <laughs> really just not listening That's to true. me. That's
2: true. Yeah. Well, that aside, but. Mariusz, congratulations on a great career. Enjoy your retirement slash second career. And thank you for what you've given us on the opera stage.
1: We love you, Marius.
2: <laughs> and now we talk about Duke. Duke Ellington. What's right, the yeah. deal, Naomi?
1: Yes, back to Duke Ellington. One of the most influential and like extremely prolific composers of American music in the 20th century. Um, very much associated with the jazz genre, although he really liked to try and push the boundaries of jazz and he really encouraged people throughout his career to think of the music he composed and jazz music in general as being like on par with quote-unquote classical art music and that it you could do so much more with it than people thought you could so he really was one for like pushing boundaries and trying new things Um, He was born in Washington, D.C. He was actually the son of a White House butler. And he studied piano from the age of seven. So that's kind of when his musical life began. And he got his start kind of playing in small groups and stuff around the Washington area. And then in 1923, he moved to... You want to guess? Chicago. New
2: York, New Orleans,
0: Las Vegas.
1: Will someone pick one as their final answer? No,
2: <laughs> no, it, it, one of the above.
1: Well, one of the above was correct. It was New, New York? York City. Yeah.
2: Hey, yes. before we continue, could you tell us a birth date or birth year?
1: Yes, eighteen
2: ninety-nine. Ooh, right. nice.
1: Yes, so right at the turn of the century, Mm -hmm. and he died in 1974. Wow, okay. So he lived a good life.
2: Definitely. Okay, so young lad in the Washington, D.C. area, and then hops up to New York when he's like a young adult-ish?
0: I guess he's 24. 24.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah.
1: And he's playing with a group called the Washington, Washingtonians, Washingtonians, Washingtonians,
2: <laughs> Washingtonians, I would Washingtonians, guess,
1: Washingtonians, Washingtonians, yeah. yes, yeah, and they were pretty prolific. That particular group um, in the 1950s and 60s, they actually went on several international tours that were sponsored by the State Department. Wow. So um, he was really, you know, well-respected musician fairly early on. Does anyone want to guess how many Grammy awards he won in his lifetime? Mm.
2: 12.
1: 17. Kyle wins 13. Damn Ooh. it, Kyle.
2: So close. <laughs>
1: 13 Grammy awards. That's impressive. Um, how, how many honorary degrees do you think he was given? Ooh, seven. Four. You're both kind of far away. 17. Dang. What?
2: That's amazing. Yes. It's interesting and i in, in thinking about doing the international tour and stuff like that, and also how you had mentioned that Duke Ellington and wanted jazz music to be considered as you know high art or on the same level as as you know music that was considered high art, and I guess on the first point of doing the international tour, I feel like it is a very American genre, like it's created in America. And so it definitely, I feel like there's a strong sense of, not like nationalism, but I bet there was a certain set of pride around this popular genre that was created in America at that time.
1: Oh, for sure. I mean, jazz, like jazz as we know it today, took root in the US and and it was born out of kind of an amalgamation of several different traditions from people who had been enslaved in the U S from Africa. Right. And so it was, and we, we know some of the um, influences that kind of came together and coalesced into jazz, but we don't really have like a complete picture because it was a very like natural organic Mm -hmm. thing that sort of evolved over time. Yeah. Um, And includes many different, like very specific musical influences from different parts of africa too and so um but in terms of it like jazz becoming what we know it to be today it's certainly like something that's born and bred in america you could say which
2: is interesting to me because a lot of the quote high art music was certainly even if it was composed in the u.s it was derivative of what was happening in europe so right nice that there could be even though once again this is borrowing a lot of elements from music coming from africa but something that could feel pretty American.
1: And it also evolved very specifically in certain U.S. cities. So basically New Orleans, Chicago, New York were like hubs for this kind of development. And New Orleans specifically, uh, early on with things like, I think we talked about this with Scott Joplin with Ragtime, that it was one of the only cities where... um slaves could mingle freely in public and so it becomes a place where like cultural things can happen because people can gather right and so um certain cities in the u.s become hubs for the development and evolution of jazz throughout like the first half of the 1900s
2: yeah well the so the other thing i was just going to say in relation to comparison to you know art music is i think now mm -hmm. jazz definitely falls into that category
1: Mm -hmm. oh yeah and the other interesting thing is that jazz was very influential on art music composers in Europe Hmm. right which is something that we don't necessarily immediately think about but especially in the first half of the 20th century um people like Debussy and Ravel and like Ernst Krennick and even like Hindemith and Kurt Weill, like they were all very influenced by jazz in different ways, and many different French composers were influenced by it, and so it's something that even though it like took root in the U.S., it was definitely exported to Europe, and then Europeans kind of took hold of it and and really did cultivate their own like jazz scenes in different cities in Europe, too.
2: Yeah, super cool.
1: So... He also, a few more uh, special things or honors bestowed upon Mr. Ellington. He won the Presidential Medal of Honor in 1969. He was named a member of the National Institute of Arts and Letters. Very nice. And he was named um, or given some kind of special honor associated with the Swedish Royal Academy of Music. Dang. So, very widely recognized. Does anyone want to guess... Like the rough number of how many compositions he created in his lifetime. Oh, my gosh. Uh,
2: 234.
1: I'm going to guess,
0: I don't know, like 3,000, whatever. Let's make this interesting. (laughs)
1: 1,300.
2: Dang. All
1: right. Wow. More than
2: 1,300.
1: 1,300. That's crazy. And he composed songs, choral works, tone poems, suites, musicals, uh, ballets, film scores, and one opera that was left unfinished when he died. Oh, right. Yeah. So when he was in New York City, he moves to New York City in 1923. And then from 1927 to 1931, he joins a band at the Cotton Club in Harlem, which is very important because it was Harlem's preeminent nightclub. Um, at this time, it offered alcohol and entertainment. And You say entertainment uh, one like those...
2: there's something wrapped into that.
1: No, like like a good band, a good
2: right, right. Oh yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. cool.
1: Nothing <laughs> like scandalous, Kyle.
2: yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I... <laughs> yeah, that is, that Get makes your sense. mind out of the gutter. Alcohol and mm-hmm. entertainment. Yeah.
1: And it was one of the places in New York that, even though the performers were predominantly people of color, the clientele was predominantly white, and mm. so that kind of lent a certain recognition to the quality of the band itself, because especially since it was located in Harlem and the white clientele was willing to go up to Harlem to see this music, which was, you know, a big thing in New York at that time. Yeah. So, um, And Ellington really used his time with this band to experiment with a lot of different compositional techniques. And so he tried out new types of pieces, new effects, new voicings and timbres. Um, He also came up with ideas for like longer form jazz work. So he wrote the Creole, uh, the Creole Rhapsody and reminiscing in tempo are both like a longer form jazz work. And then he kind of moved into doing a lot more arranging and looking at ensemble passages with solos, and so that becomes a big part of his style at that time.
2: So we're thinking and of ensembles, like ensembles, how many how many pieces would you say?
1: Or like how many people in the in the ensemble? Yeah. I'm not sure of the actual number of people in the ensemble, but um Are we- probably between between like six and 12 okay or... so
2: we're still talking about like a, like definitely a jazz ensemble this isn't him like, yeah, a, performing yeah. for like a some type of orchestra or composing for some type of orchestra
1: no no when he moves into arranging and the kind of the ensemble passages with solos um i'll explain it in a minute i have a good example to kind of explain that particular style, but um, he was capitalizing on certain players in the band that were very, very good, right? And so um, there was a trumpeter named uh, Bubber Miley and a clarinetist and saxophone player, dual threat, uh, Barney Biggard, and they could be featured as doing these like really impressive virtuosic solos and improvisatory um, things over top of a kind of standard ensemble accompaniment. Um, and the, that group actually made over 200 or around 200 recordings and they were featured regularly on the radio. So they were again, like gained a lot of fame and were widely known. And then from like 1931 onward, they start touring a lot. And so they spend a lot of their time on the road. And by that point, um, around 1945, 1946, the band had about 18 players. Okay. So So, 18 members. So I think it was smaller when they were in the Cotton Club in Harlem, but then by the time you get to 1946, it had grown a little bit. And they predominantly played Ellington's tunes, um, and they sold a lot of these things as sheet music as well. A lot of these tunes got mass-produced as sheet music, um, and they became dance favorites, which were... Also, a big part of the jazz scene was dancing associated with different uh, clubs and bars and things like that. And then in the 1940s, they also get a few more really important players, names people might know. Uh, Jimmy Blanton joins as a bass player, Ben Webster joins as a tenor sax, and Billy Strayhorn joins as a second pianist. And he was also a composer and arranger so if you've ever heard of the song Take the A Train
2: ooh yeah that was mm-hmm.
1: composed by Billy Strayhorn nice so yeah
2: it's a fun song when you live off the A train
0: which <laughs> yes. you did for a while yeah
2: only kind of annoying <laughs> because i only know like one <laughs> like that's it <laughs>
1: So an example I thought would be fun to share of this, like the typical Ellington style for this ensemble is Cottontail, which I know is uh, for some jazz musicians, perhaps the bane of their existence, because it's like one of those numbers that like every jazz musician today like has to learn Mm. um, in their career and, and learn to play well. It's also a big piece for improvised solos. So, it was actually written with Ben Webster in mind, the tenor saxophonist. Um, and essentially, it's just like a series of choruses is what they call it in jazz where it's like a chord progression, right, that just um takes a span of time to play and then you just repeat that progression over and over. And each repeat is called a new chorus. And whenever it repeats, you can have a different person be featured as the soloist over that progression right and it's usually an improvised solo over top of those chords and so the interesting thing about cottontail is that the chord progression of the um of the chorus that is repeated over and over is actually the same harmonic progression as gershwin's i've got rhythm wow i got rhythm you're like i got rhythm I got music, I got mine, and you can ask
2: for anything
1: more. And that was a deliberate, like, on Ellington's part, deliberately quoting the harmonic progression of that. But when you listen to Cottontail, like the melody or melodic material is nothing like Gershwin's piece. And so it's not like an obvious quotation per se, but uh, the harmonic structure is the same. All right. And apparently, that is called a contrafact in jazz. Nice. When you do that, when you borrow a progression from another piece and integrate it into a new one.
2: So, are we going to listen so, to Cottontail now?
1: Yeah. We cool. definitely should. <laughs>
2: So I feel like a lot of composers in many genres like quoting uh, other composers or quoting themselves, but I feel like that's a really big thing in jazz. Like they're all about taking riffs from other people, like this very playful thing.
1: I think a big part of it is because of the improvisatory nature Mm. of jazz and, and it's not... Like, it's not viewed in jazz as, like, ripping somebody off. If you take their riff, it's like you're almost, like, paying homage to that person by integrating that musical idea into a new piece. Totally. So, yeah. And I have to say classical music, like, art music, classical music does the same thing. Like, a lot of quotation is a reference, like, in order to either honor the person that you're referencing or, like, parody it in some way, right. right? So Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so throughout Ellington's life, I said already, I think that he did kind of fight the jazz composer categorization or boxing in, like, he really wanted people to think beyond that. Um, and he... Oh, also, he was pretty influential in convincing the record companies in the 1940s to record on both sides of the record
2: nice. so that
1: you could fit more music That's on it. So has have
2: got the A side and the B side.
1: Yeah. It just seems wasteful so, not to use both sides of it. Right. Right? But
2: Are you guys? Apparently,
1: he was the one who convinced at least one record company to start doing this so that longer works could be recorded okay. on the record.
2: Are either of you guys record people? Like records are making a big comeback and i feel like people have gotten into records yes you are
0: yeah i am yeah we have so you have a rec- you
2: have a record player nice mm-hmm. what do you like to listen to
0: um we have what do we have that we listen to a lot um, we have a lot of classical music because if you go to a goodwill, the majority of the records there
2: nice. are <laughs> classical.
0: Um, I was very excited the one day that I found the the lone studio recording of Cendrion. Whoa. Because this was bu- this was before it was on it's it's now on Spotify, but this was pre-Spotify, so there was like nowhere you could listen to it except for these recordings. So yeah. that was super exciting. Um Like old stuff from my parents, like The Beatles and Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young and and that kind of stuff. Yeah. We haven't used it in a while because our record player is like this cheap piece of crap Hmm. from Target that I've had for like 10 years and it's kind of not really working anymore. But
2: Fair enough. But you like the the quality of the sound?
0: I do like the quality of the
1: sound. (laughs) Nice. I also have a small collection of records and I have like Elspeth, like not a very good record player. Mm-hmm. And a lot of my records have come from Goodwill because you can find great classical music for like 50 cents each or 10 cents each. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but I also, I think my two things that I own on record that I'm like quite proud of one is Um, it's the only record I actually bought like at full price retail price which was um, I can't remember which album but it's an Adele album Mm. and it was like just like gives you goosebumps like listening to her on record because the sound just all like the quality of the sound and the timbre Mm -hmm. like works well together Um, and then I also have a recording of Peter and the Wolf with Sean Connery narrating Oh,
2: Sean Connery
1: yeah. That's exciting. Peter and the Wolf. Exactly. Very nice.
2: <laughs> That's cool. How much... uh can, yeah. you f- you, can you fit a whole opera on a record? I
0: oh, no. Like... It's like four records.
2: Right. Okay. That's yeah. No, 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 yeah. no. <laughs> so you have like eight sides?
1: Yeah. Some of them, yeah. Dang. Depends how long the opera is, but... I, mean, I have a
0: copy of The Marriage of Figaro that I think...
2: Oh it's like God.
0: five records.
2: <laughs> can you just yeah. can you decide to make cuts by just like, ah oh, we're gonna skip this record. <laughs> <And> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Going. Are there any acts? Don't tell don't uh Naomi, plug your ears. Are there any acts that you just <laughs> skip altogether?
0: I there are parts of act three that I don't particularly care for. <laughs> I said it. It's very, very long. <laughs> it is. We
2: should do a literal needle drop with Naomi and some like some, some Mozart music.
0: I'm see if she can figure out what it is.
2: Exactly. Like where mm-hmm. in that just random. Like we don't even know where it is, but we dropped the a lot of that off.
0: russet sounds exactly the same. Oh,
2: <laughs> yes, know. it does. Damn harpsichord. Nobody mm. likes well, it. Well, if you
1: guys are going to do that to me, then I get to quiz you after.
2: But, but then that's like not as fun <laughs> because you'll actually probably get some of it. Right. I mean, if you quit, depends how it,
1: brutal you are to me, if, though. It, it's it's hard. not us. It's the needle. It's, it's the record. It's just
2: it's, the record. It's changed. Ne-
0: if we needle dropped musicals, I bet I could do it.
2: Yeah, that's true.
1: See, I couldn't probably not do musicals, but also but... it would
0: kind of be easier just because they're all in English. So just from context clues, you could probably eliminate the majority of stuff and get <laughs> at least pretty close to it.
2: That's true. Shoot, I. <laughs> I don't think I like I I, first of all I'm not I wouldn't be a competitor in in opera needle drop just because (laughs) I
1: would I would give you easy ones (laughs)
2: yeah well anyways (laughs) it it would be fun if I could come up with good enough needle drop like without having a record player and the actual like if I could just pull some recordings Mm. and just Mm -hmm. pick random spots uh, with my cursor to just play for you guys that could be real fun we should do that
0: sounds very stressful
2: For you. And Naomi's like, that sounds amazing. I love that. (laughs) Yes. All right. Maybe later. I'm sorry. It took us on a whole record tangent. But
1: that's okay. I
2: mean, Duke Ellington bringing all this stuff up.
1: Yeah. All right. So he did write an opera. Nice. Yes. (laughs) Yes. But he died before he could finish it. So to be fair, it's really only like. Pieces of the opera that we have that are actually completely composed by him. It the score was not complete, but it was a project that he kept coming back to kind of throughout the the latter part of his life because he really, really wanted to write an opera based on Madame C. J. Walker. Oh, cool. And so if you know who she is she was the first female self-made millionaire
2: oh like the, in the US. like the walker yeah it was there was a tv show like a mini series about her
1: there was with um self-made yeah, made. yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. what was that on i didn't olivia watched it i only watched parts of it
1: i want to see netflix yeah
2: probably yeah. okay self-made it looked it looked very good
1: yeah i think octavia butler played um, octavia spencer
2: octavia spencer, spencer yeah, right. yeah.
1: Yeah. And so he was very interested in in setting this particular story as an opera. And so that's kind of the inspiration for his opera, which he called Queenie Pie. Nice. And the essentially like large portions of his original materials or even like what he intended the full structure of the opera to be. Either never existed or are lost and so we don't know but there are still several numbers that exist that Duke Ellington wrote and so what people have done is kind of fill in the missing pieces and kind of stitch it together and build out the story um so he didn't even really get to flesh out the story so we don't know exactly what it would have been but we have a pretty good idea of kind of the basics and people who have done this have really tried to like stick with the core essence of Ellington's style so that it has a cohesive feel to it. And uh, the first act, just to give you a sense of what it's about, um, to be 100% transparent to our listeners, it is very hard to find a plot synopsis of this (laughs) opera. And maybe it's even harder to find like, any kind of analysis of it. Um, although there is a recording that exists of one version of this particular, like a version that was completed and stitched together, but there's very little info about this opera out there and it's almost never performed.
2: Interesting.
1: The whole, the whole story is based around, um, I believe the the title character is the main character Queenie and she has a beauty salon in Harlem and she's like the most popular most well-respected most well-known beauty salon in that whole neighborhood and then there's another salon that opens and kind of creates competition and so I think the original story was about the competition between the beauty salon that Queenie Pie owned versus this new one. But again, I'm not a hundred percent sure if that's the core of the story or just part of the plot
2: line. Yeah.
1: And it is set in Harlem. um, Or the first act is set in Harlem. Um, The second act is set on uh, an island somewhere. And that's very unclear. Um, And, but we do know that, it seems like Ellington was trying to like juxtapose um, like urban hard city living in New York city with a more like rural or pastoral area. Um, So there's that. And so it's important. An important part of the plot that we do know is that this competing beauty salon that moves in and kind of encroaches on Queenie's territory, so to speak, is run by, a woman named Café Olé. And she is much lighter skinned than Queenie. And so this plays a big part of the story. And apparently uh, Café Olé made her fortune by hawking, like whitening treatments for people. Hmm. So, um, and all of this started in New Orleans, and then she, like, moved from New Orleans to New York City. And then there's this, like, promotional marketing guy named Holt, who is essentially kind of playing both sides. So he's actually, like, courting both Cafe Ole and Queenie at the same time, and he thinks that he can, like, manage the two mistresses. Um, But in the end, he ends up getting his comeuppance uh, but Queenie is, like, pretty broken up about being cheated on, essentially, and played by this guy. And so, um, so that at some point in the story, and I'm not sure how or why it happens, uh, Café Olé is imprisoned and arrested and imprisoned. I'm not quite sure for what. Um, and Queenie is left, like, jilted by Holt um, because she's learned that he has played her and then she actually goes and seeks solace um, from she goes to uh, the birthplace of a man that she knew who was very important in their community called little daddy and he was a factotum like the barber of seville factotum right and so he basically tells her like go to this place and ask for uh, help from these particular people and they will like give you something to soothe your sorrows so that's about as much of the plot that I can piece together. And I'm not really sure exactly how the opera ends or if it was even meant to end there or if there was more to it than that. Um, it sounds
2: interesting. But I like it. I mean, it obviously sounds different from most things you see on the opera stage, which I feel like is a really good thing.
1: Yeah, and I think that it does kind of fall into the same kind of category as Scott Joplin's opera, *Treemonisha* and also Gershwin's Porgy and Bess in that it was a medium where the composer and the creators were exploring issues of race, right, through music. And it's just unfortunate that Ellington died before he could really complete it because we don't really know what his full vision for the work was.
2: Yeah.
1: Right? Is it...
0: Is it sung operatically, or is it sung in a more, like, popular style, like a jazz style?
1: So from everything I've read, it is super jazz to the point where, like, the first time that Queenie sings an aria, like, the whole aria is scat singing. Cool. Okay. so That is cool. Yeah. Yeah, that- so it's the kind of thing that, like, people have written about how the title opera can be a little bit misleading because... Um, Some say because it's so, so strongly rooted in jazz that it would be better labeled as a musical. But then other people say that Ellington had the concept of it being like a work of operatic proportions. And so opera is a better Mm -hmm. term for it. But it's hard to say. Yeah. But we do know that the musical style is very rooted in jazz and the singing is very jazz inspired. So um, I, I don't think you could cast like bel canto opera singers (laughs) right in this particular opera you need people who are like trained in actual jazz singing yeah
2: so there there's recordings that exist like we can listen to some right now right
1: so there is a recording that is available and it was created by the butler school of music at the university of texas in austin nice and uh it's There are at least two excerpts that I know of that exist. One of them is called Don't Need Nobody Now. And the other one is called My Father's Island. And so I'm assuming that that one is about like Queenie talking about this island that she plans to go to to help get over the hurt of Holt's betrayal. But I'm not entirely sure.
2: Well, let's go for one. Which one are we going to listen to now?
1: so don't need nobody now is sung i believe by queenie so or at least a female singer so let's listen to that one as i think it's the closest thing we'll hear to one of her numbers and yeah you'll hear a little bit of that that jazz style
2: if there was a staged version of this opera or segments from this opera near me, I would definitely want to go see it. Absolutely. Or actually, for, for sure. that matter, now that we're in uh COVID world, if there was a live stream, I'd be all over that.
1: That would be amazing. I mean, I think it's just, from what I understand, the opera hasn't been produced enough for like a live stream or a video, high-def video of it to even exist maybe it does but it's just not it's not one of those works that a bunch of companies have like in their back pocket to then release as a live streamed event this season
2: unfortunately well once again naomi you're just broadening our horizons
0: teaching the world
2: opening our eyes to these operatic gems that most people didn't know existed but are totally out there so we should still be talking about them
1: I mean, I didn't know that this opera existed until quite recently um, when I was doing research on Duke Ellington in order to teach Duke Ellington. So there you go.
2: Yeah. I wonder... I'm learning too. I wonder... We need to keep digging into this. And it's funny that I say that because uh, (laughs) I likely (laughs) wouldn't be the one doing the digging. (laughs) But I wonder how many other composers that we know from other genres that have something like an opera or a ballet or you know, in an orchestral suite, something like that, that they just tried their hand at something more classical or based off of something from classical ideas. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you know any others off the top of your head?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Um... I, I would be shocked if you
2: did. That wasn't like with an expectation that you would have an idea.
0: No, already. no, no. Well, well, what about What about Charlie Parker wrote Yardbird?
2: Uh, he did not write that.
0: It's called oh. Charlie Parker's Yardbird.
1: Oh, okay. He's okay. a character in it.
2: Yeah, he's he's oh, like right. the primary. But he character. he did write
1: a song called Yardbird, right?
2: Um, I feel like Yard, maybe Yardbird refers it's his to his
1: nickname. Yeah.
2: I should know sure. that because I've seen the so, an opera and I studied uh, it a wrong. while ago. Well, <laughs> well no, I know I mean, that,
0: I don't know if this counts, but I know Stephen Sondheim wrote the score for this movie called Red, or it might be Reds. That was about, com- I don't know, communists. I mean, Warren would, Beatty was in it. And I think that there is an orchestral suite version. Nice. That hmm. counts. I know Ben Folds wrote.
2: Oh like yeah. Piano
0: concertos or like sonatas or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um
2: I feel like I need to get more into Ben Folds. I feel like he's done some cool stuff that I'm just not aware of. He's a delight. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Next week we'll be back with an episode on Ben Folds. Just kidding. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> Next week,
0: Ben Folds. <laughs> <laughs> what is he doing right now? Nothing. Like the rest of us.
2: Mm-hmm. Seriously.
0: I'll just text I'll slide into his DMs
2: right (laughs) just jumping on the dms (laughs) well thanks again naomi i'm glad that we've had this gem we know a little bit more about duke and uh who knows what else we'll find in the future about composers that were like opera's so good i need to get in on that i need to jump into that genre
0: definitely we'll do more research and see who else we can find
2: Mm-hmm. And for our listeners out there, if you enjoyed this episode or any of our other episodes, we would love for you to leave us a review wherever you're listening to the podcast. And if you want to call out the types of episodes or maybe the episode that you like the most, uh, we'll definitely try to get more of that type in. We love mixing it up on Opera After Dark, and we love hearing from fans of the podcast. Uh, if you want to reach out and aren't leaving a review, you can find us on social media, social media. Um, or you can email us at info at operaafterdark.com. And of course, you can find us at patreon.com slash operaafterdark, uh, where we'd be so grateful if you could go and support the podcast as well.
1: I will just say before we close off that we will be playing out to one more clip from, from Queenie Pie. This is a clip or an excerpt called My Father's Island. It is sung by a male character, but beyond that, I don't know the context. So maybe you can derive some context from, from listening.
2: I'm trying to think of a catchphrase that's like, opera after dark. Great music, a lot of context, but not all of it.
0: We're <laughs> 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 <Risk> r- encouraging <laughs> you to go out yeah. and do your own research.
2: Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. I'll keep working on the, the slogan for that.
0: Be a but, lifelong learner,
2: right? <laughs> uh huh. As always, yeah. <laughs> thank you all for listening. I'm Kyle.
0: I'm Naomi. And I'm Elspeth.
2: We'll catch you next week. <laughs> Bye. 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 My father's island. On the
3: way back when. My father's island. My father's island on the way back when My father's island on the way back when